I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. Yes, Murray, Yeah, Acklan, Fodrig, Get Mille, Falche, Roy, Daner Noah, Arlen, Inu, Garba, Fadrig, Oliver, Nefa, Brunketche. Pope Paul VI speaking in Irish to the crowds who flocked to Rome in 1975 for the canonisation of Oliver Plunkett, whose head is still displayed in St Peter's Church in Drada. Now that may give a clue as to our topic this evening. On Sunday next, the beatified Popes John XXIII and John Paul II will be raised to the altars of the Catholic Church and declared to be worthy of the veneration of the faithful. In short, they'll be canonised and become saints. To preview this event, we're joined by a distinguished panel, Dr Andrew Pearce, Assistant Professor of Intercultural Theology and Interreligious Studies at the Irish School of Ecumenics in TCD. Dr Jim Corkery, a Jesuit priest, theologian and author who lectures at the Milltown Institute of Theology and Philosophy and who's no stranger to this programme. Neither is Dom Mark Patrick Hederman, OSB, priest, author and abbot of Glen Stall. And last, but by no means least, we welcome back to RTE the distinguished broadcaster Ruth Buchanan, who for many years presented programmes like this one. Oscar Wilde once said that the Catholic Church is for saints and sinners, the Church of England is for respectable people. So Ruth, we'll start with you, a member of the Church of Ireland. What do you make of all this canonisation business? Well, we do have saints in the Church of Ireland already. I, I, I don't quite understand how we in the Church of Ireland got our saints. Um, I've read quite a lot about how Catholic saints are canonised and um, it's, it's, it's a little quirky to me, but I think it's a very nice gesture. Is the Church of Ireland view that everyone who dies um, and attains heaven is a saint? I assume it is, yes, if we get into heaven. But I wouldn't put any bets on that just yet. Oh, right, <laughs> Andrew, from the point of view of an ecumenist, what about the rituals surrounding canonisation? It's a fascinating business. Like Ruth, I'm from an Anglican background and we've seen how whilst there isn't a formal process of canonisation as as prayer books which began the Reformation with a very minimal number of saints, uh, quite a big purge went on. In the last couple of years we've seen a need to put more people back in as role models of the faith uh, and it's quite an ecumenical gathering, a mixum gatherum. Uh, that if you pick up a Church of New Zealand prayer book, you find that we are honouring on one day uh, St John of the Cross, the next day Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, and so there's quite a, a realisation, I think, in liturgical reform that when people are looking for uh, models of sanctity, uh, th- th- they're looking through quite a kaleidoscope. Well, isn't that it, uh, Father Jim Corkery? The notion of two popes being made sense, th- saints, they're not exactly role models for ordinary people. No. Um, John the Twenty Third, a bit perhaps because he's the Pope of whom somebody said he makes you feel like a person. So he had the simple touch. But it is the ordinary goodness of people uh, that I would canonise with much more ease. I was walking along the street the other day and I saw a very elderly man helping a very elderly woman. He had just helped her to stand up from her wheelchair, put her in the car 
and then very gently folded the wheelchair, but with patience and graciousness written all over him. They may have been together 60 years. That's a testimony to a kind of love that takes your breath away. I'd canonise that in the morning. Mm-hmm. And Mark Patrick, Vatican II called everyone, lay and clergy, to holiness and said that all of us could be saints. So where do you stand on all of this? Oh, I think there's been a huge change in the Catholic Church anyway. I mean, they recognised after Vatican II that it wasn't just a few exceptional people who were saints, that every single person is called to be in heaven and to be a saint. So there's been a huge change, I mean, from the year 1000 to the year 1978, there were 450 people canonized in the Catholic Church. John Paul II canonized 480 himself during his pontificate, and he beatified 1,300. In my own view, nobody should be looking for canonization, either for themselves or for anybody else. But this is the natural thing, unfortunately, that we all want our team at the World Cup. (laughs) Is it being done with undue haste, do you feel, the four of you? Do any of you have views on that? I mean, the, the second miracle only allegedly took place in 2011. We spoke to a doctor here on the programme a couple of months ago who's involved in lured verification, and it takes years and years and years. I read the homily of Cardinal Ratzinger, uh, then Pope, um, at the time of the beatification of John Paul II, just about three years ago, and he said that they were proceeding with reasonable haste. I don't think it's reasonable. It was only six years after his death that he was beatified and now three years later canonised. I mean, he's fresh in people's memories, controversially. There was complexity in his papacy. Um, It's very difficult, you know, to sift. Will there be long-time veneration of him? Will people remember him and be moved to holiness by his kind of life? I think we need time to sort out these questions and let the memories sit. Mark Patrick, have you a view on that? that it's oh, too- I agree wholeheartedly with all of that. I mean, I don't think uh, it should be done for popes at all, to be quite frank. I think that uh, it should be people who we can relate to and whose lives can give a paradigm to people who want to model themselves on certain people to get to heaven. So I think it's all absolutely ludicrous, to be quite frank. (laughs) And Ruth and Andrew, do you have a view on this? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, both Pope John XXIII and Pope uh, John Paul II, they were both time men of the year, as is uh, Pope Francis. So, you know, perhaps because uh, things are moving a lot more quickly in life at the moment. And, you know, I don't see why not if everybody in the Catholic Church or most people in the Catholic Church are happy about it. I don't see why not. Andrew? I suppose one of the things that I have in mind is something that that, 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 uh, the abbot mentioned is the the rather huge increase in the number of canonizations in, in recent decades. And one of the concerns of John Paul II, I think, was that, that so many of these canonizations took referred to people from an outside European context. He, he was rather bothered that there were so few people coming, coming through the ranks, as it were, within Europe. And, you know, when that kind of a comparison is being brought in, and it's being brought in to suggest that, you know, if we, if we can produce saints, then Christianity is safe and, and, and you know, the goal is in the net, I, I, I'm... I think there are other ways of measuring 
the state of the health of the church? The significance of this Sunday, it's the feast of St. Faustina. Um, it's Divine Mercy Sunday. Father Jim, talk us through that a bit. Yes, well, John Paul II died on the vigil of that feast and he was a great promoter of the Divine Mercy and St. Faustina is Polish. Um, I'm fond of mercy, like Pope Francis, but I'm not myself a great follower of that devotion. Mm -hmm. Um, Divine mercy, but this was a man who would brook no criticism either. Well, that's why I referred to complexities earlier. You know, perhaps because of his Polish background, being a bishop in communist times and so on, he was somewhat monarchical and authoritarian. Um, I would have, as a theologian, not looked forward to a conversation with him if I were invited to one. However, this was a man of great mercy too. There's a lovely story that comes from an American theologian, Scott Hahn, who spoke to a priest who was just back from the Vatican and he told a story that he saw a former classmate of his begging outside one of the churches in Rome. And when he went in to see Pope John Paul the next day, he told him about this. And Pope John Paul said, come back, the two of you, this evening for dinner. So he went back, got the priest, the beggar, um, who had fallen on hard times, drink, drugs, all the rest of it, dressed him up and brought him in. And after dinner, the Pope asked the first priest to leave and he got the beggar priest to hear his confession. And then the beggar priest, the Pope, heard his confession and he put him into the church that he was begging outside um, and told him to look after the other beggars. He reinstated him. Oh, yeah. And I mean, actually, that shines a different light. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. And perhaps, too, you see, I think it's difficult for people who are administrators. I mean, a pope is an administrator. He has to be as wise as serpents and as gentle as doves. And clearly, from your example, he can be the latter. And he was that many times. And I wouldn't deny that for a moment. I looked at the homily that Pope Benedict gave at the time of his beatification because I wanted to see what he picked out. And he picked out his faith, his witness of suffering, his spiritual depth, And those are things that um, I can say were there. Mm -hmm. Mark Patrick, he was one of the most travelled popes in history and one of those journeys took him to these shores. Now, on Galway, they're having a mass at Ballybrit on Sunday. There were 250,000 people there in 1979. And many people do you think might be there this Sunday? Well, I'll tell you now, when Ronald Reagan was made president of the United States, Uh, people went to visit Orson Welles, who was living in France at the time, and said, what do you think of having an actor as the most important politician in the world? And Orson Welles replied, well, it seems to be working in the Vatican. (laughs) I actually was in Galway at the time when he arrived, and it it could have been a, a, a rock concert, there was so many people there and and they were you know behaving exactly like and they didn't listen to one word he was saying because if they had they would have had a different view of the whole proceedings how did he come across ruth and andrew to you that that charisma that he had well i was completely bowled over particularly in 1979 when he came to dublin because as mark patrick has said it was rock star stuff and we had catholic friends from the north staying with us and it, it was as if they were bringing all their children in their buggies to sort of Boney M or something. You know, the excitement was there. It was simply fantastic. It was only, as Mark Patrick again has said, when you began to listen to what he was saying that you realised he wasn't all that much different from everybody else. There were a lot of flaws. But you can't expect people to be perfect. They can improve. They can attain near perfection. 
But even saints aren't totally perfect, mm-hmm. I don't believe. His postulator, who's a, who is a Polish priest, said holiness does not mean flawlessness, Andrew. Oh, that's, that, that's, that's true. I mean, and it's one of the, the interesting things when we look back to the, the euphoria of his, his visit here, that, I mean, it, it was a very important event in the life of the, the Irish church. But viewed through an ecumenical lens, it, it's clear now from the documentation that the, the putting other church leaders in to meet him at, at, at the nunciature was, was quite a last-minute thought. Um, there was a, an event organised in St. Patrick's Cathedral, uh, organised by a number of, of luminaries uh, from the, the, the Protestant and Anglican traditions, um, Terence McCahey and others, uh, who, who never even received a reply to their invitation to the, the Irish author- church authorities to see would, would he be able to, to visit a site associated in Ireland with one of the other traditions of divided Christendom. So it's, it's one of the dangers where you get this, we've, we've talked a bit about it in, in terms of the, the blurring of the lines between sanctity and celebrity. Let's turn now to Pope John XXIII, who was a completely different, good Pope John, they called him, and, more, and a lot of people think about him, those that are old enough, when they see Pope Francis, Father Jim. Yeah, I'm old enough. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember him a bit. Uh, the warmth, the geniality, the farmer-like look, you know, big contrast to Pius XII. Mm. Um, he is compared to Pope Francis because they're both, first and foremost, pastors. And so I think that's a valid comparison. And I think they both became Pope also quite late in life. So they're opening a bunch of windows. One is doing so, the other did. And who knows what will happen? Now, the question of whether Angelo Roncalli, John the Twenty-Third, was a saint, I'd be closer to saying yes because of my particular view of what a saint is. But of course, that can be criticised. I took a more from the bottom up kind of view. But there is a nice story told about there was a cardinal who was trying to make good with one of Roncalli's brothers. And he said, Mr. Roncalli, he said, your brother, the Pope, he's a great pastor. And the man said yes. And he said, and wonderful teacher. Yes, said Mr. Roncalli. And uh, uh, terrific. He is a saint. And Mr. Roncalli said, ah, Angelo, my brother Giuseppe, he said, he is great pastor, great teacher, but he's no saint. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Patrick, um, Pope John the Twenty Third was seen as a caretaker pope. And because he only lived for five years, we'll never know. I mean, he started Vatican II, but we'll never know what would have happened afterwards had he remained on. Oh, I think uh, there's no doubt in the world about it. It would have been a disaster if he hadn't. You know, uh, one of the great career moves of people who are going to be wonderful is to die. Because, you know, once you survive, uh, you're inclined to make mistakes. And the present Pope, you know, uh, will have a great difficulty in maintaining the huge popularity that the press and the public have uh, foisted onto him. But what we're talking about here is the grace of God working through particular people in ways that manifest God's presence in their lives. That's what we're talking about with regard to saints. And if you take St. Peter as our paradigm, there couldn't have been a more useless or more flawed person who was used to head up the bunch, if you like. So it doesn't make any difference, really, whether we make these people officially saints or not. 
but it, it's a popular thing to do. It's uh, Catholicism is a popular religion, 1.2 billion people all over the world. But for most people, uh, it, it's not a big deal and they would rather it didn't happen, really. They're estimating that between five and seven million people will be in the square on Sunday. And I know that, that there are pilgrimages being run here from Ireland. I think it might mean a, a great deal to a lot of people. Oh, I, I'm certain you're right. Yeah, of course it does. But, you know, that's what I'm saying. It's, that's what popular religion is about. Uh, and I'm saying for myself personally, I have no objection to that, but I don't think it has got much to do with what Christ came on earth in order to teach us. And that anybody who wants to be a saint or wants somebody else to be a saint is in the wrong uh, religion, basically, if they really examine it. Jim, would you have a view on that? Anybody, I imagine, who, if they were told, because you're always dead, you're going to be declared a saint. If they truly were holy, they'd be shocked and horrified at the very idea because everybody is aware of their own limitations, especially people like that. I do like saints. This is the interesting thing. I think Karl Ranner once said, great theologian, that the saints put faces on holiness. And sometimes God seems, you know, God is mystery. Sometimes it's very difficult to, to have a sense of who God is. But people who were close to God but reflect something of the goodness of God to the rest of the world, you can sidle up to them and you can deal with their humanity and you can touch them. And I, I think the saints do put faces on holiness, but that there can be as many faces of holiness as there are people living the life of grace. Andrew, some would say that some of these canonizations over the years have been political, like Joan of Arc after the Second World War in an attempt to have a closer relationship with France, like the founder of Opus Dei that, that John Paul canonised. What about that? Well, I think there's inevitably going to be any, any action taken by a human being is going to have some sort of political repercussions. And in many respects, what we're looking at in this combining of, 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 of John and John Paul is, I suppose, viewed ecumenically, it's, it, we're, we're looking at a, a furthering of the internal Catholic conversation about Vatican II and its reception. John... John called the council uh, and the a, a rather awkward conversation about how Vatican II might best be digested or frustrated took place, I think, in, in the decades after him. It's striking looking at some of what John Paul II said about Vatican II that whilst he came in and was very upfront about the fact that he was a, an enthusiastic supporter of Vatican II and accepted it entirely, which upset traditionalists greatly initially, when you look at what, what he meant by Vatican II, he thought it was wonderful that everybody was there. And when there were any landmarks in the history of the reception of Vatican II, John Paul II always said it was great that we were all there. He really didn't seem to attribute any great doctrinal significance to it, um, other than that he, he was very nervous about the, the, the cat of, of collegiality being let out of the bag at Vatican II, which he was very determined to put back in. So that tussling over Vatican II and how the church is going to engage with categories of, of people or churches of believers th that it had kept in very neat boxes. Um, you know, th this joint canonization, I think, puts it back on the agenda as this is what the church has to live with, a church that produces both of these characters, um, both of whom have this 
determination to be open to the world as well as a, a rootedness in tradition. Many would accuse him, Father Jim, of reversing a lot of the progress that had been made since Vatican II, John Paul II. Yeah, um, interpreting it in a particular way. For example, at the end of his papacy, there was less collegiality. Um, the notion of a church out there uh, among the people engaged socially, that was interpreted in a particular way. Um, teaching was brought back to a level of verbal exactness and tightness that made theologians feel I can say very little. Um, it was a very centralizing and centralized papacy. And that's an emphasis quite different from what they were trying to put forward at Vatican II. The Synod of Bishops, which is being changed now, became a kind of tool of the papacy during John Paul II and um, also Joseph Ratzinger's era. So I think Andrew's point is very well taken. Putting the two of them together is in a way ingenious. Do you know that John XXIII was beatified with Pius IX, who was Pope for 32 years in the 19th century and called the First Vatican Council, which was a very different kettle of fish to the second. So there again, you put two uneasily aligned people together and you beatify them both. Partly, you're trying to keep everybody happy, but you're also saying there is a conversation. And Mark Patrick, what do you think of that, putting the two of them together? Well, again, I agree that it, all this is political. Everything I agree with Andrew, whatever we do is political. And, I mean, while John Paul II was canonising 480 people, we were all saying, well, what about Massey Talbot? Why wasn't he canonising him? And the answer to that is if you were a pious pensioner from Poland, you might have had a better opportunity for promotion. This is all to do with who is in place at a particular time. And definitely, this is trying to say, number one, that popes are saints. And you have to say that I would say that during my lifetime, uh, the popes have been pretty uh, admirable people compared with the heads of other organizations that we can compare them with. So they have had a, a good track record of uh, being upstanding people in certain ways. But the notion of actually making them into saints is only viable if you make the other seven billion people who are on the planet saints as well. That every single one of us is called to sanctity. And I personally in my life know several people who are saints and to whom I speak and pray, etc., etc. So this is actually uh, an exercise in uh, declaring that the Catholic Church and the popes that are leading the Catholic Church are top uh, of, of the pile. And, and I don't think that's very helpful ecumenically. That kind of goes against everything that Francis has been saying, though, doesn't it? So it would, it would strike one as quite strange then. Well, Francis has said the most remarkable things, and among them he has said, we have not obeyed the Holy Spirit who was blowing through Vatican II. Now, that's a strong statement, and I'm hoping that he's going to get down to it after the business of this uh, canonization is over. Well, he has uh, let him through without having a second miracle, Pope John XXIII. It's on the basis, on the merit of Vatican II, that he's being canonized. 
Yeah, well, I mean, for God's sake, I don't care whether he had a hundred miracles or two miracles. That all is nonsense as well. But the fact is that uh, Vatican II was the biggest meeting that ever happened in the world. And the minute it took place, it divided into the conservatives and the progressives. And the text that was used that came out of it was hammered out so that both groups could say they had won on each line. So after Vatican II, anybody can interpret it either way. That's that's the sad tragedy of it. Father Jim, I think that's a point that you've made before on, on this programme too. Will you be tuned in on Sunday? Uh, to the canonisation? Yeah. Uh, I haven't looked at my diary for <laughs> Sunday yet, but I have... I haven't put it in yet. <laughs> and anyone who wants to follow the preparations, they're on Facebook, they're on Twitter. It's at Two Pope Saints. Mark, will you be signing up? No. <laughs> <laughs> so there, folks, I think we leave a time running against us. As usual, Mark Patrick Hedeman, Father Jim Corkery, Ruth Buchanan and Andrew Pierce. Thank you all very much for joining us on The God Slot. Well, this is the final programme of the current series and there are so many people to thank that we need another half an hour. So at the risk of offending all and none, I'm just going to say a general thank you and gratefully express our appreciation to everyone who supported us. When we began three years ago, Jerry McArdle knew that we'd never be short of material. However, he never imagined the embarrassment of riches that would come our way. So to all who sent us books or other material or suggestions, and particularly to those that we were unable to use, we ask your forgiveness. I'm going to make an exception because Jerry, this is his last programme for the moment. He's officially retiring from RTE, so a big thank you to Jerry. So until we meet again, Slán is Banacht. Gotta have faith. Mm-hmm.